AMU. American Military University is proud to present In Public Safety Matters. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Glenn Koska, your host, and joining me today is Dr. Christopher Reynolds, American Military University's Dean and Vice President of Academic Outreach and Program Development. Chris is a certified emergency manager through IAEM, and his career in emergency and disaster management spans more than three decades and includes on-the-ground responses to the Oklahoma City bombing, various major hurricanes over the years, including Andrew and Katrina, and various earthquake response and recovery operations, including the Haitian earthquake in 2010. And that is just the tip of the iceberg of Dr. Reynolds's career. How are you today, Dr. Reynolds? Hey, Glenn. I'm doing very well. How are you today? I'm living the dream. Let's start out by talking about the hurricane season, and 2020 saw a record-breaking Atlantic hurricane season. There were actually 13 named storms. 11 of them made landfall in the U.S. But I would guess if I was to ask 100 random people that very few people would even know that we had a record hurricane season because there weren't any headline-making huge ones. I mean, if I was to ask that same 100 people in 2005 if they knew about Hurricane Katrina, then of course I'd say 100 out of 100 would know about it. But of course, that was a huge and devastating storm. But Dr. Reynolds, any hurricane can be devastating, and we should be ready for anything, right? Well, you know, first of all, I, I would say that, you know, the 2021 hurricane season officially began June 1st, and it runs through November 30th. And of course, that's the time when folks that live along the Atlantic and Gulf Coast, and even some of the inland states, need to be prepared, need to be sure that they have all you know, any type of a uh, family preparedness kit prepared and ready in the event a hurricane threatens them. You know, looking back at the 2020 season, which Glenn, you sort of already touched on, you know, people don't realize that it was a record-breaking year because, as you noted, we didn't have any major storms that received major news coverage. You know, the only exception really was Hurricane Laura, which struck in August down in Louisiana. That made headlines, but in terms of named storms, that was really the only one. So your uh, analogy with the 2005 season with Hurricane Katrina, where nearly everyone knew what Katrina was or what the hurricanes were that year, contrasting it to last year, most folks don't remember. And really, the, I guess you could say the scary thing is that NOAA's Climate Prediction Center, you know, again for 2021, is predicting a uh, above normal hurricane season, you know, for this year. And that in itself should get folks' attention. That's true. They're actually forecasting 13 to 20 named storms this year, and six to 10 of them forecasted to become hurricanes. Of course, they don't all become hurricanes. Some remain tropical storms. And then further to that, they're even talking about some of those hurricanes being category three, four, or five, they're predicting that there will be up to five of those. And that's a little scary. But going back to preparedness, and the, the fact that there is no sort of good hurricane, tell me something about what happens when people aren't prepared. For instance, a category one hurricane, although the winds aren't strong, that could produce 
flooding to the extent of causing a lot of damage because of obviously once it makes landfall, the winds might die down, but the rain stays there. Is that right? That is absolutely correct. Folks should realize, you know, most people do realize that, you know, hurricanes are rated from hurricane levels one to five or categories one to five. And if one thinks of a minor hurricane, which would be category one, category two, and the wind speeds and what they produce, you know, that is what categorizes them as a, you know, not so severe hurricane. But Glenn, as you mentioned, even those not so no severe hurricanes can bring damaging wind and rain. And in coastal communities, it can cause tidal surges and the low-level flooding. And the flooding events are what kills most people. It's not really the winds, it's the flooding. You know, it's the sudden surge of water that people are, are ill-prepared to deal with, and it traps them. Or worse, they're out on, uh, on the road in a car or an automobile, and it catches them unprepared. That's true, and that's something that happens anywhere in the U.S. I've never experienced it, thank goodness, but I know people who have, and it's a very scary situation when you feel like you're out of control of the vehicle, and it doesn't take much for somebody to get into some real trouble from flooding, right? No, it doesn't. It doesn't. In fact, it only takes about uh, 8 to 10 inches of, of moving water to move a vehicle, and I'm sure most folks have seen on YouTube videos or on TV where cars have attempted to you know, go through running water that's perhaps running across a roadway, and the hydraulics and the weight behind the water simply lifts the car and moves it. And that's why people have to be so careful you know, when crossing flooded roadways, because there is no telling, first of all, how deep the water is, number one, and number two, how fast the water's moving. That's true, uh, and yet people still do it. They still drive through those things, and the best advice would be to just step out of the car, it's just a car, and go find some shelter and stay safe. Exactly. So if I might ask you for some perspective on what it's like to see the aftermath of a major storm, like we just said, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration is forecasting, a, you know, it wasn't they're forecasting a pretty serious 13 to 20 named storms this year not quite as many as the 30 that we had last year. But you've been boots on the ground, so to speak, for a few major hurricanes. I know about Hurricane Andrew, for instance, where you were uh, part of the rescue effort, and Katrina as well, Andrew in 92 and Katrina in 2005. If you could think back, what is the first thing that you saw and had to do during those hurricanes? Wow, that's really a good question, Glenn. I suppose, you know, one thing that really stands out in my mind and probably the minds of anyone who has responded to these incidents, it's not just what you see or what one sees, it's all encompassing. It's the the wind, it's the smell, it's the fact that most of the critical infrastructure has been taken out the fact that there's either no electricity or there's no water water, and you just have devastation. You're surrounded by devastation. You're surrounded by buildings that have collapsed or that have been severely flooded, debris in the streets. Uh, a lot of times you'll see people out roaming around in their neighborhoods, you know, trying to get a sense for what's happened to them. It's almost surreal. Of course, a human being, when confronted with that as a responder, you know, they also feel much of those same feelings that people that live there do. You know, they feel sorrow and they want to help. So in terms of what stands out, you know, it's just the fact that you're suddenly immersed in utter devastation. 
in 2005 when we landed at Louis Armstrong International Airport in New Orleans, two days after Hurricane Katrina struck and after the levees all broke, we were confronted with a severe flooding and masses of people that were stranded that needed rescues. And one can go back and look at the news reports or you know, see videos of people being plucked from rooftops, all forms of airlift being utilized. You know, people were brought to Louis Armstrong Airport where we were to be assessed medically. And those that needed to be transported to hospitals were either transported to local hospitals in the New Orleans area that could receive them. And if they couldn't receive them, then they were put on uh, aircraft and flown to host cities where they could be seen. So it's just really all encompassing. There really isn't any one thing it stands out, it's a combination of nearly everything. And most emergency responders that have responded to disasters carry much of the of the weight and much of the the loss with them, you know, into their older life. I mean, gosh, I'm 63 right now and Katrina was so long ago, yet I still have vivid memories of the smells and the sights and some of the things that we did just like Oklahoma City. You know, that was even further back. You were talking about Katrina. And you were one of the people, like you said, that just arrived there. But what are the different entities of emergency disaster management? I mean, what type of professionals are gathering before or during a hurricane like Katrina? What are the different departments who might be on the ground or landing to offer aid to the victims? Mm-hmm. Great question, Glenn. One of the things that a hurricane provides responders and city planners and community planners, is it generally provides enough time for planning to occur. You know, generally with the way the National Hurricane Center tracks the storms, you know, we're gonna know pretty much 72 hours out where that storm is headed to. So it gives communities a chance to prepare. But I wanna say that when that storm is 72 hours out is not when communities should be preparing. They should be preparing a year, a year, whatever in advance of a storm and have the infrastructure in place to deal with the storms once, of course, that they hit. Some of the local agencies, of course, are your police, law enforcement, your fire and emergency management, uh, your emergency medical, any uh, community works, roads and streets, any one of the local infrastructures that helps the community or rather runs the community day to day that most people don't even think of will all be prepared. They'll have personnel on standby. They'll generally have them somewhere outside the area or within the area that is well protected. State agencies also, state law enforcement, state emergency management, state division of forestry, they also will be preparing and have standby teams. In fact, the U.S. Forest Service's overhead incident command teams will also be involved and they'll respond in to set up their instant command system, which will then sew in or involve the local emergency management folks and fire and rescue and law enforcement people into their instant command structure. Federally, you have mainly the uh, Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, that pre-stages resources into a general area. Now we have 10 FEMA regions in the country and primarily the hurricane season affects FEMA region four along the East Coast and, and around the Gulf Coast. So you will see assets pre-deployed to staging areas to include power company trucks, uh, water works trucks, dump trucks, loaders, again, a task force of emergency response vehicles. You'll see anything that a community would need to survive in a staging area. So that's where the planning occurs. The planning and mitigation are really important. And this is where essentially you forecast what your needs are going to be 
you then assemble those resources and you stage them. And then once the hurricane or once the storm has hit and it's post-disaster, that's when they respond out and start going into the areas that are stricken. Right. And the personnel that you mentioned, they can only do so much in preparation. I hate to bring it up, but there are people who have hurricane parties. And I'm sure you love those people, Chris. <laughs> but it must get frustrating sometimes to emergency disaster management personnel and FEMA and et cetera, when they have this proactive approach to everything. And yet there are people still who don't climb on board with that proactive approach and, and they think that they're going to have a reactive approach. And sometimes those people are affected by the hurricane so much that they're not able to react in time or they are severely injured or worse. And so a big part of it is the community and educating the community. And it must be difficult, I would think, for somebody in the field of emergency disaster management to deal with people who are just like, oh, it's, it's, I've seen worse, it doesn't look that bad. And that probably, and I would actually say certainly, would get frustrating, right? Absolutely. You know, one of the things that, that most folks don't realize is that people who are at a mandatory evacuation area and they don't evacuate, it requires additional resources to either convince them to evacuate or to move to the next people that want to evacuate. And post-disaster, those are the first people that we have to go back and, and look for and attempt to rescue. So they make the uh, jobs of responders more difficult, and they also make it more life-threatening because now we have to go in and get that individual or rescue that individual or search for that individual. You know, I think it's human nature, you know, part of the pride, and we can call it American pride, you know, I'm, I'm not going to do whatever you tell me to do. I think that I've lived through enough of these storms. I know when it's going to be bad and I'll be okay. That seems to be the default response when you try to evacuate. But the mere fact is, is that, you know, we don't have the time to waste time on individuals that refuse to evacuate short of a deputy sheriff or law enforcement officer putting them in protective custody and forcing them out. And that doesn't occur very often, you know, because there are plenty of people in those areas that want to be evacuated. They just need the help. Most folks don't realize that, you know, we're dealing like with nursing homes or ACLF buildings that have the elderly or have the special needs populations in them. You know, we spend a lot of time there evacuating those folks and getting them into a safe area. So obstinance from the population that lives in evacuation zones that say they're not going to evacuate, quite honestly, we don't have the time to waste on them. They run the risk of losing their lives and also threatening the lives of responders. They're going to have to come in after them and look for them. It's just common sense. It is. But yet every year, every year, and even in today's world where you get a tweet telling you to evacuate. You get a tweet or a social media message saying, there's a Cat 5 coming towards you. I mean, before the internet and before huge mass communication, the, the only real warning that you would get would be in the newspaper or on network television, and that's if you are watching network television. I'm talking years ago. So the fact that we have so many ways to inform the public to evacuate that just heightens the frustration, I'm sure. It sure does. I mean, look at it, Glenn. We've gone from the time where barometers were really the only way we could tell if a low pressure or hurricane was even approaching. You know, and you mentioned the use of newspapers and radio primarily. And now we're, you know, in the 24-hour news immersed, you know, cycle with social media. 
there really isn't any way that a person would not know that a storm is coming their way. Now, I will also say that local communities and their emergency management agencies do a really good job notifying their populations of a storm and its approach. And they go beyond just notifying. They provide resources. They let them know where evacuation shelters are. They let them know the correct routes to get to those shelters. They also provide them, and I would put a plug out for FEMA's ready.gov that provides a number of resources for folks that can go and look at to find out what they need to survive a storm. You know, if they go to an evacuation shelter, what should I take with me? How soon should I leave? At what point do I fill up all my fuel tanks? At what point do I execute whatever this task is? You know, it's really important that folks that live in threatened communities have an understanding of what those requirements are because that will help them survive the storm and moreover, help them survive the recovery. I'm Glenn Costco. My guest today is Dr. Christopher Reynolds, and we'll be right back. When you surf, you know that making the right decision means no excuses or compromises. American Military University was founded by a veteran with the same mindset. AMU offers quality, affordable education built around my goals, like monthly online course starts and transfer credit evaluations that evaluate my experience to help save me time and money. I chose American Military University because it works around my life and it's purpose-built for vets like you and me. To apply, go to amuonline.com slash veterans. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Glenn Kosko talking to Dr. Christopher Reynolds. You mentioned ready.gov. You mentioned earlier, of course, in your own experience arriving at the hurricane scene that the water is out, the electricity is out. In fact, I would imagine all the utilities are out. Whatever it is that powers your whatever has gone. And ready.gov, I believe, has details on an emergency kit that everybody should have on hand. Correct. Especially if they live in, and it's not just a hurricane zone, but obviously there are earthquake zones as well. Oh, sure. And the same thing applies. An earthquake, of course, will take down all of those same utilities, maybe on a wider scale. Absolutely. So tell me about what should be in that emergency kit in sort of order of importance downwards, I guess. Sure, I'd be happy to. But, you know, you mentioned earthquakes. Anybody who watched any of the news last year saw the wildfires out in California. Same thing. Wildfire, you know, a, you know, what's called as a, you know, a hurricane kit or more commonly called a disaster kit. One wants to think of that as the bag, if you will, that contains all the things I need to survive for at least 72 hours once a storm hits. If people that shelter in place, that stay at home, which is fine, that's what uh, we do a lot here in Tampa. You know, I've had my whole family over here sheltering in place when storms have come through. You know, we've never been in a mandatory evacuation zone, so that's not an issue that we face. But if we did, we'd certainly go to a center. So a hurricane kit really should contain non-perishable food. And by non-perishable, I mean you don't want to have any, you know, hot dogs and bologna or meat or anything like that in it. It needs to be essentially boxed food, canned food, something that will sustain, you know, without cooling in a refrigerator, and that can be easily opened and gotten to to feed your family. You also want to make sure that you have enough water. And that water, again, needs to be a 72 hours that you have to have that water availability. Now, uh, you know, folks go out and buy a pallet of water. They don't say like a full pallet, but they'll buy like cases of water. They can have them around, which is a good idea. It's not a bad idea to fill up your bathtub and stop it. You know, put a stopper in and have standing water in there as a backup. Not as a primary, but as a backup. 
If you have a swimming pool, obviously that's not gonna provide you very clean water, but still it's a water source, and if necessary, it can be filtered. It can be prepared to be made safe, you know, but you wanna use that as a last resort. Most importantly is to have a first aid kit, and that first aid kit should contain bandages, you know, ace bandages, band-aids, gauze wrap, you know, anything that you would need or, you know, a family member may need if they're cut by something or they get a uh, an insect bite or something that needs to be immediately taken care of. Now, it's really important, too, that you have, it, you know, at least 72 hours of your medication. So, you know, if a uh, evacuee or a shelter-in-place person is on blood pressure medication or diabetes medication, they should make sure they've got enough on hand to sustain themselves for that 72 hours. Personal hygiene is another item. You wanna make sure that you've got like bottles of, of instant soap or some way to clean your hands to keep sanitized and keep clean. Anything to do with making sure that your hygiene is kept up to date, I guess you could say, because again, you're not gonna have air conditioning. You're not gonna have running water. You know, it's gonna be a, a pretty bad, austere situation. And you wanna have the ability to, you know, keep clean. Obviously, flashlights are important. Enough batteries for those flashlights are also important to have those on hand. And lastly, one of the things that ready.gov recommends particularly is to have a battery-operated radio. Now, radios are probably the most important thing to keep in touch with what's going on. But you don't want to have a radio that only runs off your 110 outlet because if your power is out, it's not going to work for you. You know, so you want to have either a hand crank radio that builds up juice as you turn the crank or enough batteries in a radio so that you can at least find out what's going on around you. You also want to be sure for preparation, and this goes sort of beyond the kit itself, is you want to be sure that you have all important papers, you know, passports, birth certificates, you know, tax records if you've got them for the last year. Put them in storage containers that are waterproof. Keep those in the house, keep them up high so that they aren't damaged when the storm comes. If you have generator, make sure that before hurricane season begins that you start and run your generator to make sure that it works. You should always remember that you should never run a generator inside a house or inside an enclosure or even under a pool deck. That generator has got to be out in the open where the carbon monoxide that emits not gonna take a risk on, on being poisoned by that. Vehicles, you wanna make sure that your vehicles are at least three quarters or above in fuel. If you've got three cars, hurricanes approaching, seasons here, make sure your vehicles stay full of gas because you just never know where you're gonna have to go with that vehicle to find an evacuation shelter or to find someplace safe. Right, and ready.gov, I'm sure, also teaches people how to prepare their property for a hurricane. A lot of people might jump to sandbagging and boarding up windows, but those are the two primary things that popped into my head, so they probably pop into most people's head. But what other things can you do to secure a property? And I'm talking about not just the house, but vehicles. And like you said, there might be a pool, there might be some sort of structure near the house, there are trees. There's not too much you could probably do. Well, maybe there is. Why don't you tell our listeners something about that? Well, you know, hardening your, your house, and that's what it's called. It's called hardening your, your house or your, your home. And the way you harden that, first of all, is working in a concentric circle, either from the house out to the perimeter of your property or starting from the perimeter of your property and working into the center of the house. So if you start out on your property and work in towards the house, you want to make sure that anything that's loose, lawn chairs, you know, bird feeders that are, that are lightweight, 
any type of lawn ornamentation that one may have, you want to make sure those are brought in and either put in a garage or put up close to the house so they don't become driven by the wind. Again, you know, you look at the, the speed of the wind primarily is going to want to lift those items and propel them. And they can propel them into your home, into your car. Worse, it could propel it into yourself, and you don't want that to happen. So as you work in, you want to make sure that any garden hoses that you have connected are disconnected and stowed properly. If you have an outbuilding, it's important that if you have an outbuilding, a lawn building, that it's tied down to the ground, either through an auger system with cables. You don't want to have an outbuilding that's just free-floating on top of the, uh, on, on the grass. If you do, there's really not much you can do as a hurricane approaches, but prior to the hurricane season beginning, it's not a bad idea to make sure those are tied down. As you come into your property, into your pool area, pool furniture, anything that you have that's sitting around your pool deck, you might consider getting that stowed properly. And I'm not advocating this, but a lot of people will put their pool furniture physically in the pool. I've done that before myself because uh, I ran out of places where I could put things. Then as you get into the house, you want to make sure that if you have the capability to board up your windows and you've got the plywood that's already been pre-cut or you go to the lumber store to get plywood, that you anchor it properly because uh, those sheets of plywood can be deadly in a windstorm. And a hurricane will just propel those and they're like flying guillotines and you don't want that flying around. So, you know, you make sure you do that. If you have sandbags in most local communities, primarily at fire station locations, will have piles of sand and bags. And it's generally up to the public to bring their shovel and the manpower with themselves to fill sandbags. And sometimes they're limited to the number of bags they can take, but you know, it's not a bad idea to have sandbags on hand to, you know, sandbag your, your door seals at the bottom of your door. So if the water is blowing or is running, you know, up towards the house, you can at least keep it from going under the door sill. So those are some of the ideas with sandbags. Right. And it's interesting you mentioned securing the outside items. I'm actually looking at my bird feeder right now, and it has a point on the top of it. I mean, an actual point. When you were mentioning how things become projectiles, I'm just, I can't even imagine that thing flying through the air. And the same with the plywood. I guess people assume that they've attached the plywood to the house correctly, but it wouldn't hurt, I suppose, for a refresher and how to do it exactly right if there was a Cat 5 hurricane heading towards the house. Yeah. Well, honestly, a Cat 5 hurricane is the plywood's going to do very little <laughs> with a Cat 5 hurricane because the wind speeds are so enormous. See, that's the thing, isn't it? Knowing that a Cat 5 is on the way, those are the ones that you really, there's no point in doing too much. You've just got to get out of there. You've got to follow the evacuation orders because that's realistically the only way to survive. Am I right? Absolutely. There really isn't any sheltering in place for a zone where a Cat 5 hurricane is headed. It certainly isn't the optimal, optimal choice to make. You know, you think about a hurricane that has you know, wind speeds that are in excess of 150 miles an hour, almost 160 miles an hour, there's very little that's going to stand in its way. It's going to go where it wants to go. And it's going to, you know, blow over or take with it whatever it wants to take with it. That's part of the scary part of, the, of these storms is that you just don't ever know. You don't know, you know, how it's going to intensify. And, and we've all seen news reports where hurricanes have started and they've crossed from the Atlantic into the Gulf of Mexico as a Category 3, then the prediction center says, well, it's probably going to go to a Category 2, 
and then it hits the warm waters in the northern Gulf of Mexico, and just before landfall, they strengthen the category four or five. And again, that's the gamble. That's the gamble that people take if they say, well, I'm not going to evacuate. I can survive this. And that's a fatal mistake that people make that they should not make. They should not risk their lives. That's true. And I have to say this because it's often something I've thought about. But even when the Cat 5s hit, you get some chucklehead on the TV in their raincoat with a microphone leaning into the wind saying stuff. And that's always boggled my mind. I don't know about you, but... That's just telling people, well, if that guy could do it, he's about my height, about my size. Uh, yeah, sure, I'll go out there and give that a go. And, of course, <laughs> it just sort of makes the whole situation worse, right? It does. Let's face it. We all know that the media, it's all about ratings. And they can get somebody out there to look like they're getting windblown and, and beaten in a storm to, to bring the live report. That sort of one-ups the competition. But that's very dangerous because even the news media, they, they put at risk, not just the reporter, but the sound person, the their camera person, everyone's at risk during that for the shot. And you see here again, one of the, one of the fallacies of that is if you see these individuals leaning into the wind and talking, they just don't know if a piece of plywood's going to come along and hit them. They don't know if a, a piece of debris is going to fly through the air and hit them. They don't know if they're going to be have their feet taken out from under them and blown into the water. It's extremely dangerous. Thrill seekers, the same. It's not uncommon to see right before a storm, you see, you know, folks with the surfboards down on the beach trying to get that one wave they want to get in, not realizing there's rip currents involved in that and the risk they take drowning. And again, not just their risk, but the risk of the responders that have to go and rescue that individual should they be, you know, they have a problem. Pretty selfish, really. That's true. I, I will say, I think a majority of people these days are adhering to the uh, precautions and, and uh, what the first responders and what the FEMA teams are telling them. Would you agree with that? We're getting to a low percentage of people that are out there trying to find that wave and walking into the Cat 5 storm. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that the more people are educated, the better off and the better informed they are of the risks they're taking. Right. And one other thing I wanted to mention I'd like to be prepared for things to the point where nowadays you can look at the weatherchannel.com or the Hurricane Center website and all, all the other different websites that deal with hurricanes. And you can see these tropical depressions sort of leaving the coast of Africa. Oh, yeah. And so, I mean, in this day and age, there is so much time for people to be keeping an eye on those things because although you don't know what's going to happen to that tropical depression leaving the coast of Africa... History tells us that it might just head straight for North Carolina or South Carolina or Georgia, Florida, etc. So is it advisable for people to be that proactive and just take a note of those radar and satellite images of what's happening even far east of where they are? Absolutely. I absolutely believe they should. It doesn't take but a few minutes to watch the local weather. And generally, the local weather reports will also provide national weather. And most of those national weather reports will point to the potential for hurricane development or storm development in the tropics. You know, the Weather Channel and any of the 24-hour weather services, the Weather Channel is really good. Uh, we use them quite a bit in the Air Force. Uh, when I was an emergency preparedness liaison officer, we relied on the Weather Channel quite a bit to look at and compare against our Air Force forecast maps, and they were very close. But if you can look and see a disturbance that's developing off the southern coast of Africa, and you know that's going to basically propel itself along the southern Atlantic into the Caribbean, that's when people should start be paying attention. 
and uh, you know, forewarned is forearmed, Glenn, and, and this is sort of an area where too much information is, you know, is a good thing and not a bad thing because from a preparedness point of view, the earlier you're aware of the threat, the more time you have to prepare. I'm Glenn Koska. My guest today has been Dr. Christopher Reynolds. It's always a pleasure to speak with him. Please join us for the next podcast. And until that time, stay safe. For more information about our university, visit us at amuonline.com. Thank you for listening. AMU, American Military University.